What is the subject of your essay? Why is American government the best government in the world? Your teacher crafted that question? Yeah, why? <laughs> well, yeah, I'll look past the obvious problems in syntax for a moment. I'll focus more on the core of the question. I mean, A, does America have the best government in the world? And B, what constitutes the best government? Is it crime? Is it poverty? Literacy? Hmm? In America, definitely not best. Perhaps not even better than most. We do have a very entertaining government. I mean, Dad. Most entertaining is an underrated comment from 17 years ago. And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, podcast where psychology meets film. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we're talking about a great sardonic dramedy that, upon revisiting, is far more enjoyable than I thought it was even, you know, 15, 17 years ago when it came out. This episode's film, we're going to focus on Thank You for Smoking. Now, this was a sort of a sleeper. You may have seen it. You may not have seen it. There are a couple of, uh, uh, actually, uh, not a couple of. There are a lot of famous people, especially having really great careers in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, as it were. So we're talking a bit about a 15-year-old, 17-year-old movie. So, yeah, Thank You for Smoking came out in 2005, so in the middle of pretty much the Iraq mess, the Afghanistan stuff, well, at least at that point, the the beginning of it, George W. Bush was president, and it was a lot different of a time, interestingly, then, as this movie, as a time that this movie really pokes fun at, uh, than it is now, Um, and the part that I think is quite interesting is how so much has changed about smoking in 15 years. Uh, and we're specifically talking uh, in this movie about cigarettes, not e-cigarettes, although that vaping and e-cigarettes has definitely been a massive shift in the last 10 years. So, you know, this movie came out probably at the right time to not only poke fun at smoking and this and really the tobacco industry but as it was as as the public perception of cigarette smoking is on a steep steep decline and it was it, it was basically at this point bottoming out in the, in those mid 2000s uh now the focus has been has, has shifted to uh, e-cigarettes and, and vaping for sure because that has that has increased nicotine consumption in our society but but tobacco consumption is way down and so it, just before uh, I get any uh, angry comments uh, I'm just kidding nobody leaves me angry comments um, before you know in before 
we're going to focus on cigarette smoking as a behavior, as a an unhealthy behavior in this uh, in in this episode. And we're not really going to constantly compare it to vaping. We'll probably do a little bit of comparison to get us started, but it's not going to be uh, focused on like, well, that was smoking, and now it's now it's moved on to. Uh, it's moved on to vaping and nicotine. And it's just like, and the, there's, there are broader themes and psychological concepts beyond, you know, our, what substance of choice are we, we talking about? Is it, is it cigarettes or is it something else? Now this movie came out in 2005. Like I said, it was written by Jason Reitman, who also directed it. Uh, it's based on a Christopher Buckley novel. And, in the movie, you can see the satire and that sardonism that is dripping in this movie uh, from the Christopher Buckley novel. You can see it, that, that sarcasm is dripping, you know? Uh, so Jason Reitman adapted the screenplay and uh, directed the movie, uh, uh, the son of Ivan Reitman of, like, you know, uh, Ghostbusters fame course and the film stars aaron eckhart he plays a guy named nick naylor who is the uh spokesperson for a lobbying institute of tobacco studies or whatever it was uh you know so so like a fake research arm of the industry and he's the spokesman for it uh he's not the guy in charge though which is is interesting and uh, it stars a lot of other people. So obviously the movie focuses on Nick Naylor and, that, and, and we're going to focus on Nick Naylor as well as, as the main character in this movie. But Cameron Bright, uh, who was a child actor and has done some adult things uh, now these days, he plays uh, Nick's son, Joey. Maria Bello plays Polly, who is the spokesperson for... Uh, uh, alcohol companies or the moderation council as it is referred to uh and uh the other person of the mod squad the merchants of death was david keckner you may remember david keckner as uh, champ bailey in anchorman so he was having a career renaissance at this time he's been around since then of course uh because he's a very funny guy very funny guy uh he plays bobby j bliss who is the uh spokesperson for a sort of nra kind of firearm organization of course uh these these names are fictitious because they parody uh the real organizations so they, they, those three are the Merchants of Death, the Mod Squad. Uh, Joan London plays herself in a great intro, in a great daytime TV, you know, part of the, <laughs> the tiny sliver of daytime television life that kids these days will never, will never get. They, they never have to stay home and watch daytime TV. They can just watch YouTube all day. Uh, there's just that sliver. So Joan London plays herself um, and a couple of other actors. J.K. Simmons in a great role as just a kind of smarmy, kind of hate him executive for this institute. He's the, he's the boss. Uh, William H. Macy plays uh, a senator from 
Vermont, and I'm pretty sure he is supposed to be parodying Bernie Sanders. That is my take on it. Uh, and his name is uh, Orderlan Finister. Uh, so a very uh, odd name. And then in a, in a, in a in just a, a great kind of phone it in role, I don't really have to do much of anything. Robert Duvall plays the uh, head of the one tobacco company that really is the big funder behind uh, the tobacco institute that Nick Naylor live, uh, works for, lives. Yeah, he's a lobbyist, of course, uh, so he lives in his job. Uh, it plays the captain, the head of the uh, the head of the tobacco company that is behind all of the stuff in this movie. And Rob Lowe, Rob Lowe plays a fantastic uh, parody of a talent agent like a, the, the biggest talent agent in the world and just like super into japanese culture it's it's probably the dopiest thing and doesn't need to exist in the movie in the way that that it does um and so you're, you just kind of just look at it and you go huh i wonder if there are any agents in hollywood who have weird fascinations with stuff just like blanket their offices with weird stuff if you haven't seen the movie uh rob Lowe's character his agent is really interested in japanese stuff and <laughs> spends his time on japanese clock like tokyo clock uh time zone and and Oh, it's just all over the place with his Japanese iconography and uh, furniture in his talent agency. It's it, it doesn't have to be in the movie and 100 percent is worth it. Very, very so much worth it. And a few other uh, small parts here and there. Katie Holmes in uh, this movie came out the same year that Batman Begins came out. And, uh, you know, she plays. Uh, she plays Bruce Wayne's love interest, you know, that and and in that movie. And that came out before this movie came out, I believe, uh, in the year. So she was like riding that high. It's it's quite uh, it's quite interesting. So anyways, I've been rambling for a long time and I know this episode is probably going to be one longer side. So I'm going to end it here so we can finish talking about the movie. I have so many things that I want to say about it. We're going to finish talking about it with our guest up next. My guest host today is Dr. Ed Hansen. Ed joined us last year to discuss office space in episode 47. If you didn't catch that episode, let me remind you, or let me tell you who Ed is. He's one of the specialized teaching faculty members at Florida State University's psychology department, where he teaches a variety of courses, including industrial organizational psychology, research methods, the psych of personality, and social psych. Ed, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, it is so good to be back, Alex. I had an absolute blast doing the Office Space podcast with you. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I I don't know about you, I've already started my semester teaching mm -hmm. and I think you're about to start. I had yeah. a, a good break, a full break, not quite a restful break, but I do have that new semester energy going for me right now. So it's a perfect time to talk about teaching and movies. 
Excellent. Well, I'm happy to have you back on because uh, the last time we we chatted, uh, we we became uh, stepbrothers, best friends uh, regarding movies and psych. So, I mean, let's let's talk about what you just did. You were recently at the National Institute for the Teaching of Psychology, also known as NITOP. I love how they did that. Uh, so any good tidbits as we're on this kick of teaching and you just started, you've got that energy, uh, anything from the conference that you'd like to share briefly? Yeah, I'll try to be brief. It is not, uh, easy to be brief with the things that you take away from NITOP. Uh, NITOP's always a phenomenal experience. I really feel like I've, I'm with my people when I'm at that conference and it fills my cup. It gives me ideas. Some of them are like the big picture ones that are going to take probably semesters to put in. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do have a couple like really, really quick ones okay. uh, that I also came away with. So um, Dr. Ina, if you're on TikTok, the TikTok lady, the TikTok psychology lady from mm -hmm. California was there and she did a wonderful presentation on how to discuss how TikTok is Way too good at spreading misinformation. Way like too in my good. research methods class, I am now inserting a slide right after Wikipedia on TikTok because <laughs> Wikipedia is so much further ahead as far as like people taking a look at it to make sure that it's a good source. They include their sources. Yeah. TikTok. Oh, man. You could say anything you want on TikTok. Literally say anything you want. If you're not familiar with her, she takes someone spreading a lie, someone spreading a myth, someone spreading something that is like, this can't even be believed by anyone that's unfortunately being shared by thousands or millions of people. Um, and, and she dispels it immediately. Like, did you know, Alex, that many people believe that your trauma is stored in your hips? Oh, my and God. And she jumps in and says, is that short for hippocampus? It can't be short for amygdala. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I'm going to drop a couple of those in. I've got little discussion boards where my students can drop in some TikTok trash talk. It's it's going to be present. If TikTok anything, trash talk. Okay. TikTok trash talk. Baby. You, you say that ten times fast. Um, <laughs> I don't but, want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is TikTok trash talk? Basically, I'm going to, um, I, I use a, a platform where students get to drive their post basically based on their own curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I want them to share um, some posts that they find to be dubious. It's like, hey, based on my experience, this this seems like misinformation. I want them ah, to practice that I gotcha. their BS detector a little bit, if you know what I mean. Sure. And so um, it more or less just a way to, and, and hopefully it's not going to be a way to perpetuate and spread misinformation within my class. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I'm trying something yeah. right away out of the gate. So you never know how that's going to go. Yeah, but that's always. I am excited about it. That's great. Um, that's always a... Um... Uh, an issue that I, I've kind of run into as well when I teach 101 and I I, I spend uh, the half the time talking about myths and misconceptions. Um, we investigate these, you know, famous myths that are out there. And I'm just like, hmm, some research out there does suggest that, you know, repeating them makes it, you know, this we're mere exposure effect or whatever. Yeah. It, and it, you know, it kind so of it's reminds a me, line you have to walk. It reminds me of 
something else that I took away. So like as a review tool, everyone knows two truths and a lie Mm. as an icebreaker, but you can actually use it as a way to gamify reviewing with your students as Mm -hmm. well. And all that you need to do there is clear debriefing. Like, yeah, this is the lie and here's why it is a lie. Yeah. After every round. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I think that you don't want them to say like, but I chose the answer is C. And now I think that's true. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a risk. Mm -hmm. And then um, let's see, one more demo. This was probably the talk of, uh, there's a a session called the Demo Demo. And we had a person that was talking about operationalizing uh, variables. That always takes a little curve to say the conceptual and operational definitions of variables. And, you know, if you're not careful, that can be a dry unit. But um, our students certainly know, and most of your listeners probably know, uh, if you have heard a song and you're like, ooh, that's a banger. Okay, what makes a song a banger? And then also there are songs that are bops. And so this exercise is practicing using conceptual definitions. Okay, what do you think a banger or a bop is? And now how are we going to measure it? How are we going to differentiate between them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's a nice way to get them engaged in something that they're a little more familiar with Yeah. Uh, before you dive into how to define stress and whatnot. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I yeah. Like so that. in general, in general, those are just some quick hitters. But um, Nightop, if you have never been, I cannot recommend it strongly enough. It's convenient for me in Florida, of course, but it is uh, sort of like ACT, a great teaching site conference. Yeah, I, I agree. And for the people who can't make Nightop because it is in Florida, uh, the great thing about ACT is it moves around. You know, it, yeah. it, it moves and around. And also, it happens to be where I met friend of the podcast, Molly Metz. Oh, interesting. And you saw some other friends of the pod, as you as you said. Uh, Jason Spiegelman was there. Uh, Jason Spiegelman was there. Jess Hartnett was yep. there. A few others, I'm sure. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's like a big family reunion down there. Yeah, I think ACT and ITOP have that in, in common. So those are those are some great ideas. I might be, I might uh, take uh, Banger and 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 Bob or Bob or whatever. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because even though you can't see us, this is an audio medium. A banger, you kind of you know your head banging a little bit. A bop, it's kind of more shoulder to shoulder. It's kind oh, of back and forth. It's a little okay. more boppy hoppy, and so you know that's a different kind of song. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I've never thought of it that way. Nor had I, but it's stuck. <laughs> Nick, do you have a question? Joan, how on earth would Big Tobacco profit off of the loss of this young man? Now, I hate to think in such callous terms, but if anything, we'd be losing a customer. It's not only our hope, it's in our best interest to keep Robin alive and smoking. That's ludicrous. Let me tell you something, Joan, and please, let me share something with the fine, concerned people in the audience today. Huh. The Ron Goodies of this world want the Robin Williger's to die. And you know why? So that their budgets will go up. This is nothing less than trafficking in human misery. And you, sir, ought to be ashamed of yourself. I ought to be ashamed of As a matter myself. of fact, we're about to launch a $50 million campaign aimed at persuading kids not to smoke. Because I think that we can all agree that there is nothing more important than America's children. All right, Ed, let's pivot to our movie chat now. So 
when I asked you to be on the show again, I was like, hmm, do you have any suggestions? Because Office Space, let's be honest, was an amazing suggestion. And uh, to all the, to all of the haters out there, of course, I need an IO person to talk about Office Space. So I needed you, of course, I needed you to be on the pod again. Um, and I needed a really good one. And you came, you came swinging. You came swinging. You're like, how about thanks? Thank you for smoking. I almost said thanks for smoking. Thank you for smoking. <laughs> it's important that you get the title right because it is uh, it is formal and it's meant to be that way because he has a little Absolutely. he has a little placard on his uh, on his desk. When you see it, you're like, ah, roll credits. Right. <laughs> so what were your ideas for bringing thank you for smoking to the pod? So as you mentioned, right, office space, my IO background, that was a very, very natural extension yeah. of, yeah. you know, you've had a second IO episode now with the leadership episode mm -hmm. of Marvel. That was cool. But my background is also in social psychology. I was at a combined social and IO program. Mm -hmm. And I've always been drawn to psychology that is broadly applicable, whether it's yeah. political psych, sports psych. IO, social psych, all of these things where my students and I can quickly, easily, readily see connections in our own lives. Yeah. And I think that Thank You for Smoking is one of those movies that hits on so many different levels. There's a lot oh, of different directions so we're going to go with it today. Yeah. And so, I mean, cognitive bias, political psych, moral psych, health psych. So many. Persuasion, argumentation, all that stuff. This movie has a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And so I was so glad that you said yes. <laughs> How could I not? As I was saying in the intro, it is such a well-crafted, it's 90 minutes. You know, it's, it's tight. It's, it's a tight it's 90 a minutes. Tight 90 minutes. And even though there are some aspects that don't really need to be in the movie, like Rob Lowe's agent and it's his fetish Japanese fetish or whatever like that doesn't need to be in the movie and yet it is such a quick blink and you miss it parody uh probably of Hollywood agents it's just like this is great and yet it doesn't take away anything from from the movie oh absolutely not and it, it just you makes know, it more enjoyable in my opinion I mean, smoking and all of this, you know, so this is based on a book you probably mentioned that came yeah. out in the 90s. And this is when it's taking place is in the 90s. So like we weren't tempted to smoke in the early 90s very much. Right. And so our age demographic, it hit a little bit later and it was already back on the way down. It was already yeah. waning. But it's a fascinating right. look at when it really started to crumble for big tobacco. Yeah, and I, I also mentioned that it, it, the movie itself came out in 2005 when, even, when there was even less focus in our lives around smoking, right? Like, even yeah, I think 2005 was very close to when, like in Illinois, where you are, where mm -hmm. I was going, that was very close to what, like when Wisconsin and Illinois were, you know, banning smoking in bars yeah. and all of these things. So it was just becoming very not in vogue to do anymore. Exactly. But it reflects a time where, you know, everybody smoked. It, it I mean, yeah, I suppose in, uh, in uh, the 90s, a lot of people. Well, were yeah, not, I, I think it it alludes to it, I should say. Yes. It'll, yeah, I think it alludes to a time because you kind of like, OK, well, what 
when is this movie really? There's not a lot uh, about the, the time period. Like you don't look at it and you're like, that's dated. Uh, so that's really good for it because so it fits a time as such just like late 20th century around the millennium, so to speak. Right. It had a lot less Y2K references than Office Space. So that makes it a little more evergreen. Exactly. Exactly. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, well, this is a time in that uh, there was a down, there was a noticeable downturn. The captain alludes to it and they're just trying their hardest to get smoking back into yep. movies and things like that. And, and, and so I think that's a really great, a place to set it on the downturn and in the middle of the downturn. Mm -hmm. Very, very true. And so um, I know that you're very excited to talk about the health psychology stuff. And Mm. I also think that um, even for a teacher like me that does not teach an entire course in health psychology, but uh, you know, has a, a unit or two and a course or two, Health psychology classes, if you're not careful, can get a little preachy and people are going to stop listening. So I think that using the humor in this movie is a way to really bridge the gap and and get people to listen when they might want to tune out. That's true. And so I think broadly what I want to do with this is take the health psych aspect first, because obviously we're talking about cigarettes and the tobacco companies and the tobacco lobbying that was being done and then the other part of the movie which is sort of like a father son tale of morality and persuasion uh, because there is this like back and forth with the father and the son Nick Naylor and his son Joey um, where he's trying to teach his son how to be an effective communicator using the tools of psychology and and that's where your bread and butter comes in so i think we've got a uh a couple of segments uh in here that uh will dissect what do you think let's do it all right so like i said this first segment uh i want to talk about the health psychology because when uh, Ed, when you you said thank you for smoking, I was like, oh, duh, I used that in a class like three, no, more than three years ago. This was pre this was pre pandemic. Uh, so I used this uh, in, in a previous health psych class as one of the, the movie. At this point, I was offering a list and they could pick one from the list. And so thank you for smoking was on there. I think I, I had seen this movie probably maybe five years or so after it came out um, rather than seeing it all the way back in 2005. I don't know if I would have understood it as much as I did if when I watched it around 2010 or something or whatever it was. There are movies like that, that it's like, okay, this is hitting me differently. I think we both watched it while we were in grad school than if we were going to watch it when we were, you know, uh, just finishing college or something. Yeah. I, and for me, it was finishing high school. So I was definitely not in the mindset to appreciate this. Although at the end of high school, the current Alex is as against cigarette smoking as finishing high school Alex. So or remind just me in to college. tell you my cognitive dissonance cigarette story in a little bit. All right. Because I, I can relate. All right. Sounds good. Uh, which helps us bridge us into health psychology. So again, I used it for a class and they could pick it because it makes sense. And so Ed, when you suggested, it, I was like, this is amazing because 
I spend some time in health psychology talking about uh, addiction and how nicotine is one of the worst for addiction and all of that. And now it's more an issue with vaping because a, a potentially more addictive form of nicotine because it's in the oil and it's pure and it's not the smoking and inhalation thing. It's well, I guess it is inhalation, but it's not smoking in vaping. It's probably worse than it was with cigarettes. At least you could point to some negative stuff with cigarettes right out the bat. Like it's, they smell bad. So as I said in the intro, uh, we are going to focus on cigarette smoking and not sort of get bogged down in all of the stuff regarding newer issues that we have, which is vaping in youth. Uh, so as the movie points out, this is at a time in Big Tobacco where they needed some wins because they kept getting heavy losses. Uh, in the mid-90s, California was the first state to ban smoking indoors uh, in most places like bars and restaurants. And of course, state after state after state started following suit uh, because California was like, we got to do something about this. Let's do some social engineering. And so when we talk about uh, cigarette smoking, we see a pyramid shape in U.S. history, right? And we see a huge uptick and then in and it peaking in like the 60s. Mm -hmm. And then we just see a decline after loss, after a law, after a loss, after a law in the tobacco industry, right? More laws, more losses, more laws, more losses, because the science kept pointing out, hey, there's a link here between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer. Yeah, like as early as uh, the 19... 50s they yeah. were starting to allude to this and um i know that the captain you know his big claim was like oh we got the filters now don't you worry about the cancer we've got the filters never you mind that in these filters is just a little tinge of asbestos <laughs> yes oh my god it is the worst twist of 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 science uh that <laughs> just you're like wait a minute Okay, so the filters are fine. Wait a minute. Uh, and so now you have emphysema, lung cancer, mesothelioma. Oh, boy. Yeah, and and we still have some of these issues moving, moving forward in time. Like the filters got better, of course. Um, approximately about 15% of U.S. adults smoke cigarettes in the United States. I don't know what those figures are worldwide. There's a great uh, episode of Last Week's Night with John Oliver that talks about to the tobacco industry worldwide, and that's where they make their money. That's why they're so big, even in the United States, is because companies like Philip Morris make billions of dollars with cigarette sales in other countries that have a lot of people and uh, cigarettes fill a need, right? It's because it, it's a it's a psychoactive substance that makes you feel real good. How many of you want to be lawyers when you grow up? Right. How about movie stars? Oh. How about lobbyists? What's that? It's kind of like being a movie star. It's what I do. I talk for a living. What do you talk about? 
I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mom used to smoke. She says that cigarettes kill. Really? Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. A scientific researcher of some kind? No. Well, she doesn't exactly sound like a credible expert now, does she? <laughs> Don't feel bad. It's okay to listen to your mom. I mean, it's good to listen to your parents, Joey. All I'm suggesting is that there will always be people trying to tell you what to do and what to think. There probably already are people doing that. Am I right? Yes. I'm here to say that when someone tries to act like some sort of an expert, you can respond, who says? So cigarettes are good for you? No. No, that's not, that's not what I'm getting at. My point is that you have to think for yourself. You have to challenge authority. If your parents told you that chocolate was dangerous, would you just take their word for it? No. Exactly. So perhaps instead of acting like sheep when it comes to cigarettes, you should find out for yourself. Okay then. Yeah, it's interesting too. I've often thought about how like the warning labels in many other countries are a lot more graphic, are a lot more visual than they are in the United States. Right. Not quite skull and crossbones, but they sow diseased lungs and things like this. Yeah. And yet those countries have very high smoking rates in comparison. So it's a it's a tricky one. Australia is my favorite because they put the the, the like the entire pack of cigarettes is a picture of like a diseased lung like it's the entire thing and it's just, it is wild so as far as the health psychology stuff goes it, it bleeds into a little bit of what ed's going to talk about in the second segment which is the persuasion aspect of nick nailer's job in this movie which is uh as a lobby person but i wanted to focus on one thing that is is talked about in the movie and this is one thing that the students who chose this in the assignment picked up on which is how messaging is done for health behaviors um and how i break this down comes into the movie by way of this joan london surprise $50 million anti, uh, anti-smoking teen campaign uh, or anti-teen smoking or whatever, whatever we want. Yeah, to prevent kids from smoking. Yeah, to, pre- yeah. to prevent teens from smoking, right? And it's a surprise thing and, and everybody's like, why are you doing $50 million? And And, and uh, BR, Nick Naylor's boss, played by J.K. Simmons, uh, goes, you know, you, you could have just said $5 million. And... And Nick Naylor says back to him, five million gets you a couple of posters, right? So this needs to be an effective marketing campaign. So what kind of marketing campaign would you expect in a uh, in an anti-smoking campaign? Well, why don't we talk about what it was from our childhood? Ed, what kind of anti-smoking campaigns did you see? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is not smoking as much as drugs, right? The fried egg. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The ad council. Yeah. This, this this is your brain Mm -hmm. and this is your brain on drugs. And, and that certainly comes to mind. But um, if I think about smoking, I think the ones that stuck with me were the people talking through voice boxes. Ah, yes. Especially that famous woman who um, had to get a tracheotomy. And she ended up getting a settlement from tobacco companies, I think. And she ended up dying, I think, in the last 20 years or so. Something if like I that. had to bet, I would say yes, probably. <laughs> but-, <laughs> but yes, her voice, or, and, and this is the voice box voice, um, 
really sticks in my mind, right? And then we got the uh, truth campaign, right? Yeah, and the, so, the I mean, truth it's... about tobacco companies and stuff like that. Yeah, where there were like a lot of the statistics and things like that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, right? So not to get too social again, but you've got these central versus peripheral routes to persuasion. Right. You've got, and I also talk about it in my personality class in terms of like, if you're a person who is high or low in need for cognition, do you want the stats? Do you want the data? Do you want the information? Right. Or is tugging at your emotional heartstrings going to be more persuasive for you? Right. And you know, it's like you can look at the COVID-19 pandemic, you can look at smoking, and you have to use both kinds of messaging to be truly effective, to reach everybody in the classroom, in public health, whatever. Sometimes it's got to be flashy, and sometimes it's got to be the hard facts. Right. And I think that's a good balance coming from a scientist. But of course, you know, marketing and advertising execs aren't scientists. Right. Uh, they they take the worst of of science and use it and bend it to their their will. And I think with smoking, and, and this is just from my perspective, gr- growing up in a very anti-smoking state, to be honest with you, even though a lot of people in, in Southern California smoke cigarettes, I remember growing up and seeing cigarette butts everywhere. Uh, so again, not, not, so, not even just a public health hazard in the way of um, you know, consuming the smoke, both firsthand and secondhand, as we know, but also just like cigarette butt trash everywhere. And it's, I mean, that's what that's, that's uh, definitely aided me in my um, hatred of cigarettes. And it's funny, too, because I don't feel like bad about saying that I have a hatred of cigarette smoke, cigarette smoking. I, I really do. Is one of the things that I hate most in this world. And I think part of that had to do with the messaging that I got as a kid, which was very fear-mongery. Oh, sure. It is funny how I could have, like, like you, really had this anti-cigarette mindset but I could still romanticize pipe smoke or cigar smoke because of our other associations, right? It's like if you have a loved one, like a grandfather who puffed on his pipe or something, you know, that's like kind of a vivid memory for a lot of people. Sure. But I I also was stuck in the car with my uncle. I love my uncle. He's still around, thank goodness. But it was a very smoky car and that was just not enjoyable. Right. Ugh. And so he would try and crack the window, but you can only do so much. And so <laughs> That's right. You can only so, do so much and it sticks to your clothes. Sure. Yeah, I agree. So, I, I don't know if I have a, I, I don't know if I, I have a fondness for any other or romanticized, but I, I understand what you're saying that, uh, that a lot of people can separate different things in their minds, uh, regarding, yep. regarding the behavior. Not necessarily in a logical way, but in no. a real way. Yes. In a, I, I mean, at that point, who cares about logic? You're like, well, my, my granddad did it. So it's okay by me, uh, cigarettes, no, they're gross. But pipe smoking by this one specific individual, I'll give it a pass, right? So we've got this, these, fear, uh, these fear appeals yes. that were generally uh, exposed to in the anti-smoking world. And so like that is 
not the way, in my opinion, that uh, the Institute for Tobacco Studies or whatever it's called in the movie, um, the place where Naylor works, that's not what they want to They don't want to do. They don't want to um, do any fear appeals because fear appeals actually do work uh, in the short term. And if you want people to be long-term customers, you don't want to scare them off in the short term. No, they would probably take more of a reverse silly rabbit trickster for kids approach. Yeah. Right? So it's like, not until you're 18, but we'll be waiting. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you can, when you turn 18, just It'll stop by your fun. local shop. But hey, don't do it until you're 18. Not don't like do we it. know psychologically that if you tell kids they're not supposed to do something, that they're absolutely going to want to do it. Exactly. And that brings me to my next point. Thank you, sir, on reactance bias. So um, just a little shameless plug here. Uh, my Wondrium slash The Great Courses course just came out. Uh, and it came out earlier this this month of recording. If you're, if you're listening in the future, it's been out for a while. Um, you should get on that. But it's on understanding cognitive biases. That's what the title is. And I have an episode called Reactance Bias. And it's, it's all about uh, what this bias is when we hear something that we're like, yay, I get to do. And then somebody says, no, you can't do. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought I could do it. That's not fair. And then you just are just very angry about the whole thing. Like, and and it, to be honest, like anger is the most common uh, emotion associated with reactance bias because we think we're getting our sh- our freedoms taken away from me and that's a great theme represented in the movie and especially the last sort of um the coup de gras kind of delivery that Aaron Eckhart gives when uh the senator played by William H Macy Philliam H Muffman uh says you know would you let your son smoke a cigarette and when he's 18 I'll gladly take him if he wants it, you know? Uh, And it's just like this idea of personal liberty, and that's where... And you see the correlation um, across studies where people who have more individualized uh, belief sets, conservative belief sets, have stronger reactance bias when you threaten to take away things that they perceive as their freedoms. And it's it's a wild wild set and that's the fear appeal working in most people is that they react to it they're like "Ooh, no and um and that's like the marlboro man but that's not the reactance that i'm talking about that's that's the visceral like "Ooh, no that's negative consequences i don't want negative consequences versus making an argument about a personal choice which he does very adeptly talking about uh, ice cream flavors right Absolutely. It's like, oh, so you think that chocolate is the best. You think chocolate is the only one that we need. Well, you know what I think we need? We need choices. We need vanilla. We need strawberry. We need liberty. And implying, of course, you know, we need liberty because we're Americans. And his son says, Dad, that's not even what we're talking about. And he's like, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying to convince them. Mm -hmm. And it's this very powerful moment. And you know, we can count countless examples where people are asked to do a little thing or told they can't do something and they want to lean into it even harder. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think that the ice cream example is an example. So simple. A kid can get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so he's so good at that. 
Yeah, and and that's the kind of uh, that's kind of dichotomy that gets set up in this movie, right? So, do you scare people? That's what the senator is doing. Do you scare people into acting against cigarettes, or do you frame it in a in a completely different way? I mean, it it, it by all accounts, Aaron Eckhart's character Nick Naylor was arguing in bad faith there, right? He set up a straw. Yes. Man. He set up a straw man. And he decided that I'm. We're now arguing about the straw man, but that's that's how these that's how these appeals work. The other thing that I wanted to mention that I discuss about smoking that kind of shows itself in this movie in sort of this uh, what's this ad campaign gonna be is what happens in real life with these kinds of campaigns. So, again, it's an anti-teen smoking campaign, right? A prevention. That's actually an important word. Prevention. There are two different kinds of health messages. Health promotion. This is a message that is framed in a way that says these are the things that you'll get, these positive benefits from doing this health behavior. And then there are the prevention frames, which are framed in negative ways that you will get either nasty negative consequences, uh, you know, uh, you will get negative things happen to you or positive things won't happen if you don't do the healthy behavior. So they're very similar and yet opposite ends of the messaging spectrum. Uh, one way to think about it is that health promotion messages are gain frames, you'll get something, and prevention messaging is losing something. So an example of a promotion uh, frame would be like, um, you know, if you brush your teeth, you'll get a healthy white smile, right? And and our culture values white teeth, right? And then a, a, a loss preve- uh, or a prevention frame uh, or a prevention, health prevention message Example would be like, you'll get uh, gum disease and gingivitis and your teeth will fall out if you don't brush your teeth. So which one do you do? No, you you brush your teeth, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about the brushing teeth thing is that that seems like a no brainer. I'll get a healthy white smile if I just do this thing for two minutes, a couple times a day, uh, or I can lose my teeth, but it doesn't work for flossing. Isn't that funny? It is the worst. Flossing is the worst. I uh, hand to hand to my heart. Flossing is the worst. I know. I'm gonna have to uh, go to my dentist here in a couple weeks. Here, my beginning of the year checkup, and I'm of course I'm gonna like really ratchet up the flossing a couple weeks in hopes that they will be very pleased with my report. <laughs> Why, yes, I have been flossing. Thank you for noticing. I won't do it again. I'm so glad you noticed. I won't do it again for another five months. Uh, until then I see you again. <laughs> I, I'll have to do that. I do have a dentist appointment coming up in a few weeks as well. <laughs> but back to smoking. So you can you can imagine how smoking would fit in this kind of uh in this these kinds of two frames what are some other ways that um we can prevent teens from smoking ed do you have any ideas 
So I'm, I always go back, even though it predates us, mm-hmm. I think it was so interesting how like Joe Camel had to be banned. Even though he predated us, we know all about Joe Camel mm-hmm. and the cartoon characters that we're targeting smoking are so villainous with the benefit of hindsight. And so it's definitely like, even though he wasn't on television, I still saw him in magazines at the doctor's office. Oh, my God. And he so, was everywhere. Yeah. And so, you know, Joe Camel was this face for listeners that might not be as aware. He was basically like, oh, I was about to say he was like James Dean, but he was a camel. That's another even older reference. But he was the cool cat. He, he was a leather jacket, sunglass wearing camel who always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. And so I'm not doing a very good job at coming up with prevention right now, but I think about how that probably from the opposite side is what turned it on, right? The coolness factor. Yeah. Not nobody lights up saying, I can't wait to be addicted. They just associate it with this coolness. And so they had to make it uncool. Yeah. They had to make it unglamorous. Right. That's a good one because they did the same thing um, in on as you said, on television and television shows, eventually the MPA um, started uh, putting smoking labels, although that wasn't until the last, this current century, really. Uh, and so banning of the action started to make its way, although there is no law for many of the uh, film bannings. They just decided to take in the like sort of conventional industry approach and what is everybody else doing jeff mcgall nick naylor mr naylor's here to see if we can't get cigarettes into the hands of somebody other than the usual rabs rabs russians arabs and villains oh well then yes i guess that is why i'm here good i think we can help jeff invented product placement i feel i have to ask uh, are you concerned at all about the um about the health element I'm not a doctor. I'm a facilitator. I bring creative people together. Whatever information there is exists. It's out there. People will decide for themselves and should. It's not my role to decide for them. It'd be morally presumptuous. I could learn a lot from this man. But what we need is a smoking role model, a real winner. Indiana Jones meets Jerry Maguire. Right, on two packs a day. Only he can't live in contemporary society. Why not? The health issue is way too prevalent. People would constantly be asking the character why he's smoking. And that should go unsaid. How do you feel about the future? The future? Yeah, after the health thing's blown over. A world where smokers and non-smokers live together in perfect harmony. Sony has a futuristic sci-fi movie they're looking to make. Message from Sector 6. All takes place in a space station. They're actively looking for some co-financing. So cigarettes in space. It's the final frontier, Nick. But wouldn't they blow up in an all-oxygen environment? Probably. But... It's an easy fix. One line of dialogue. Thank God we invented the, you know, whatever device. Brad Pitt. Catherine Zeta-Jones. They've just finished ravishing each other's bodies for the first time. They lie naked, suspended in air underneath the heavens. Pitt lights up. He starts blowing smoke rings all around Catherine's naked, flawless body as the galaxies go whizzing by over the glass domed ceiling. Now tell me that doesn't work for you. I'd see that movie. I'd buy the goddamn DVD. And, you know, if the Academy didn't send them to me for free. You know, 
You guys ought to think about designing a cigarette to be released simultaneously with the movie. Sector sixes. No one's ever done it with a cigarette. Wow. It is interesting now seeing how Disney has all of the smoking tobacco use warnings mm. on a lot of their programming. Yeah. And sometimes I've thought to myself, there are other things worthy of warnings in this film, but I'm only being warmed about Cruella DeVille's Cigarello or whatever. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, it, to the point where they, they have actually, as a company, they said they're not going to have any character smoke on screen anymore, including the remake of Cruella, despite the fact that it's part of her iconic character. You will not see Emma Stone light up in that movie. That is wild. I mean, I get it, and it makes sense from their current perspective uh, that uh, that they wouldn't have Emma, and and maybe Emma Stone didn't want to. I don't know. Maybe she's fine. Maybe she'd be fine with it. Um, a couple of other ways in which uh, engineering and prevention has worked in the United States. I don't know about any other countries, but um, we do a lot of taxing of things for a country that was like, no taxation without representation, uh, said a couple of, said said several businessmen um, who created a fake tea party. Did you hear about this? The Boston Tea you Party mean, was, uh, was, was staged. When? The Boston Tea Party. Oh, yeah, of course. I thought you were saying more recently a couple of guys. Of course, yes. Yeah. And so, sorry, right. I, I thought you were taking it a slightly different direction. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, the fact that taxing people, we call it a syntax. I also wonder if we have a little bit of a reactance to the syntaxes. Like, you can't tell me again what not to do or this That's is interesting. a little naughty. You, you, you bring up a good point. By calling them syntaxes, some states do label them as syntaxes. Um, but then other states like California just label them as excise taxes. It's just hmm. like, what the hell is an excise tax? Well, Nobody it's just, an, it's just another name for an added tax, a tax on top, right? That's what excise is. But really it's just a euphemism for a syntax because mm -hmm. why else would you tax something? Right. Yeah, and you know, maybe um maybe there's a slight little effect there. Who knows? So uh, I would agree. Less reactance. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree that if you had syntax uh as part of the receipt printout or or uh on the you know the label or the Yeah, the do you sign. wanna pay the excise tax? Uh, excise tax or the naughty tax exactly yes you're uh, right i would love to see i would love to see a study um maybe that's been done but maybe it hasn't we could just quickly set that up ah oh, too bad nobody smokes anymore uh bummer we can do it the e-cigs let's do it yeah e-cigs exactly although jewel can't sell their stuff anymore apparently or something There's a lot to unpack, yeah yeah there is that's why i didn't want to get bogged down in that because so much to unpack and so, so in addition to taxes, right, uh, I'm curious, Ed, do you know the legal purchase age for cigarettes in Florida? Almost 100% sure it's 18. 18. Okay. Do you think Floridians want that to be a lower age? <laughs> Which Floridians? <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> like, where do they live? I mean, well, you know, the the south of of Florida is fairly um 
fairly diverse. And Are there states that have a lower age than 18? I don't believe so, but I mean, I remember hearing even in the 90s that some states wanted to lower the smoking age, even though it was, you know, on the decline. That, that seems like a way to lose your voting base, if you're asking me, but who knows? Yeah, I don't know. We live in strange times. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, so when I moved to Illinois in 2017, it was still 18. Um, but a couple of years after that, the, a law went into effect that increased that to 21. It was 21 uh, for the vast majority of my life living in California, which was quite interesting. Uh, so. And and many other states are moving forward with increasing that to 21. And it just it sort of blocks people out of the marketplace. That's what you want. You want three years older. Of course, some people make the argument. Some people make the argument, well, if they can, you know, go fight in a war and possibly die, let them have some cigarettes. And that argument gets repeated for things like alcohol, too, or gambling, depending on sure. where you are in the yeah, country. And... <clears throat> If, if you want to talk about when adolescence ends and when adulthood begins, you know, our, our gray matter in our brain, it doesn't follow the legal standard, right? right? Exactly. It takes us a little longer than that. Yeah. So having these mind-altering kinds of substances and other kinds of addictive things, waiting till you're 21, there's a lot of research that supports that. Sure. But I don't know if you know this, Alex, the laws don't always reflect the research. Right. The laws don't always reflect the research. And you, you could make an argument that you should, you could, I'm sure you could make the argument. It's a pretty silly argument, but you could make the argument that nobody under the age of 30 can drink alcohol for this, that, and the other reason, right? So you, you got Yeah. And we know that the pendulum can swing too far. We don't want a right. prohibition that's going to, like, exactly. you know, really have the strong reactance effects. So it, it's a, it's again, it's a tricky one. Right. And, and you mentioned prohibition. That's another way that society manages these kinds of things. But as <laughs> as an astute uh, listener might know is that, uh, you know, the U.S. Constitution tried that once, said no to alcohol. And of course, that's the worst thing you could do. <laughs> and it, you know, it took... How it took what, but the better part of a decade, maybe more to get that repealed, I think. 1918, yeah, I, I, I'm not a uh, constitutional expert on my dates, but it sounds <laughs> about right. Yeah, it took like 15 years for them to get their heads out of their asses. Uh, and and so, uh, when I was in grad school at UCSB in, um, 2014 so it was the winter quarter 2014 starts in january uh they were like we are a smoke-free campus and <laughs> it's so funny because you have a story i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you about that cognitive dissonance story here in just a second so we go to a smoke-free campus so ucsb was like no smoking on campus no use of tobacco products on campus even e-cigarettes and and not and it was more or less, we want to be a healthy campus. And of course, we can't support or facilitate um, an unhealthy behavior. And the day that it was enacted, I'm walking outside, 
past a common area, right? It's not even like it, I was walking in some place that not a lot of people walk. And if you could like sneak in a smoke or something like that on a now a smoke free campus. Um, it was literally a common area not too far from the entrance of a building, which had been regulated even before that, right? The law in California was it's like 20 feet or something. Um, and most people don't know how close 20, how far away 20 feet actually is. They're just like, yeah, this is 20 feet. And they're like five feet away from the door. But this, this guy was smoking a cigarette right next to uh, an entrance to someplace. I wasn't going to that place. I was just walking through. And I, I, I look at him and I make eye contact with him. And I said, it's now a smoke-free campus. Can you put out your cigarette, please? As I kept walking, like I didn't stop. I didn't confront him or anything like that. I just, I just said it at, as passing. And he never took his eyes off of me. As I'm walking past him, he sticks the cigarette in his mouth. And he takes a long ass drag off of it. Pulls it out of his mouth. And, and at this point, I'm just like looking back at him as I'm walking away from him. And he takes the, the cigarette out of his mouth and he just lets it out really slowly as we as I just turn around and shake my head. And I, I did smirk, um, even though I was very frustrated at the time. I was like, oh, come on, man. That was really rude. Looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, of course he's going to do that. That was me as a grad student who's like, yay, smoke free campus. Everyone bend to my will. Uh, so that was my smoking story. Uh, I do want to hear yours before we take a quick break. I think mine is is kind of wrapped up in like very deeply entrenched in understanding the cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. bias, right? Right. So cognitive dissonance, when I teach it, I do the classic example of how, you know, they do the boring study. They're offered, offered $1 or $20. And the students are always blown away by the fact that, you know, if they're only given $1, that they actually say the task wasn't so bad. And so we talk about sufficient justification and all of these extensions. Fast forward or go back in time, I guess, before I was teaching to when I was 21 and in college, I had never smoked a cigarette at this time in my life. And I was pretty proud of that fact, but I had plenty of friends who did. Mm -hmm. And we were out at a local establishment having a few brews and it comes up that I've never smoked a cigarette before in my life. My friends are like incensed. They're like, this is a rite of passage. You are barely a man you need to do. And so this is not having any effect on me at all until they say, what if we sweeten this pot Ed? if you smoke three cigarettes with us tonight, we'll three. give you, I'm not proud of this story. They said, we'll give you three cases of beer one case of beer <laughs> per cigarette and i said why does this matter to you so much they said doesn't matter that's our offer what what was the Take beer it or leave it. what was the beer my choice okay what was going to be your choice this is very important i chose poorly <laughs> i'm just saying i chose poorly and so you know I, it was it was a beer for the masses right i was living the high life i believe <laughs> And so I did it. And, mm -hmm. and I tell my students this story from time to time. And I say, so do you think 
after this that I was anti-smoking as I had been before mm-hmm. or that I had adjusted my attitude and said smoking's not so bad. Mm-hmm. And I admit to them that I was more or less, slightly less, but basically as much anti-smoking as I was before. But unfortunately for me at that time in my life, three cases of beer was sufficient justification. If they would have said, hey, smoke these three cigarettes and we'll buy you a soda pop, and then I did it, I probably would have felt real bad about myself. But afterwards, I felt like I had made a pretty good deal. I remember I was like coughing and smoking and they're like, no, you have to inhale. And I'm like, I'm trying. But it it didn't change my opinion, Alex. That was a great story. <laughs> oh, that was a good story. I love it. I love it. Living the high life. Oh, man. Oh, everything about that story is amazing. Oh. And with that, we'll take a quick break so I can collect myself. Uh, stay tuned for more Dr. Ed Hansen. Thank you for smoking. Hey friends, Astrid here. You may know me from such films as Crazy Rich Asians, White Oleander, or How to Train Your Dragon. Wait, what what was that? I wasn't in those. I wasn't in those. Okay, that wasn't me. Ooh, okay, well. Astrid here. You may know me as the other half of your favorite podcast host, Dr. Alex Swan. And I'm here to shout out listeners like you. Thanks for supporting the pod. Whether that's buying merch, sharing episodes on social media, or making donations. You can visit cinemaslikepod.swansite.com to get your hands on previous episodes, or if you're like me, just another hoodie because we live in the Midwest. We appreciate you. Now, back to the show. And we are back with Dr. Ed Hansen talking. Thank you for smoking 2005 uh, Jason Reitman film with Aaron Eckhart as the main character, Nick Naylor. And we are going to focus a lot on him in the second segment to round out the last segment on smoking as a behavior. I wanted to make a note to anyone who you maybe recently watched the movie because you're like, oh, there's a podcast episode on it. I'm going to watch it and then I'm going to listen. Uh, or you you know, just saw it recently because you're like, oh, it's on stars. Uh, nobody smokes on camera in that movie. Not a single character in the film is shown smoking on camera. It's alluded to several times throughout the movie. And of course, major focus of some characters' backstories, like Sam Elliott's The Marlboro Man, um, and even the biggest potential smoker out of every single person, every single character in the movie, is uh, Robert Duvall's captain. He's holding a cigar on his final, like his deathbed, basically, because he ends up dying of heart failure. It has a cigar in his hand, but he is not shown smoking i think this is an amazing piece of filmmaking from jason reitman what do you think ed oh yeah it was something that was subtle during the movie but upon rewatch you're like 
They really did it. They really did a movie about smoking where no one lights up and is smoking at all. And Great. they didn't do that with alcohol. They didn't do that with guns. And no. the Mod Squad, you know, it's, it's right there brandish on the table. Right. But with smoking, you know, he reaches into that pack, but it's empty. Mm-hmm. You never see him do the whole way. And the uh, the closest thing you would get to smoking in the movie would be him being stuck in the smoke-filled room uh, when uh, when he's escaping his uh, capture, uh, his kidnapping. <laughs> and then the only thing regarding nicotine consumption you see in the movie are the patches that get put all over him so he can right. OD on nicotine. Yeah, that, that scene, holy cow, I had entirely forgotten that he was kidnapped in this movie. And I don't know if we're going to have time to get back to this idea of what I can and cannot forget or misremember. But when I was telling people how excited I was to be doing this movie, my memory of this film was a false memory based on a deleted scene from the DVD. That's and wild. I, I was watching this movie. And it actually, this is where it gets close to having someone light up a cigarette. Maybe that's why they cut it mm. was because his son was going to light up a cigarette after the big testimony in front of the government. Mm-hmm. And he slaps it out of his son's mouth, basically. It's this super visceral, super emotional scene, mm-hmm. which is probably why I remember it so well. Yeah, And so it was totally very different than the rest of the film, but it totally undermines his whole character to that point, everything he said about choice, everything he said about liberty. Mm-hmm. And so... That it's so funny. Like when the movie ended, the credits were rolling. I had to scour the internet to say, where did my memory come from? And I realized it was from the deleted scenes on the DVD. 2005 was peak deleted scenes. Yeah. On DVDs. Oh, I had to do every single disc I got from Netflix. Every single one. I was, I had to make sure. And if it was a two, two disker had to get the deleted scene. I had to get the bonus features on the like mail delivery it was yeah it's one thing i do miss about the i i miss that now we're in the streaming era you don't see nearly so much of that yeah now. you really have to go looking for them on youtube and i just one quick tidbit uh regarding that deleted scene is i think it also undermines uh the parody of his kidnapping which was that he smoked he smoked so much as a younger man that he was his tolerance for nicotine was high enough that it didn't he, he didn't OD, right? And so literally smoking saved him. And so smacking the cigarette out of out of his son's mouth would undermine that humorous moment because he's suggesting that uh, it would suggest that smoking doesn't actually save lives, which is the message, the broader message, I suppose, of the movie. But not his yeah, character it makes, development. It would, that, that scene would make the film a lot less funny. It would turn it into a different kind of movie right. to put that spin on it at the end. But we're talking about the movie that's not the movie. Let's get back to the movie. Yeah. All right. So, Ed, you had ended the last segment talking about your cognitive dissonance story. And um, there is a lot of cognitive dissonance and or maybe not in this movie. What did you spot? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about my cognitive dissonance story, and I'm pretty sure 
graduating from college 2006. That story might have happened the year this movie came out in 2005, <laughs> which is which is pretty wild. But I was searching the whole movie. I'm like, when is Nick going to start to feel this cognitive dissonance? When is he going to feel that tinge in his tummy that he's actually doing something wrong? Mm-hmm. Because like me in that story, he has justified his actions. Right. In his mind, it's for the mortgage. We do it all for the mortgage. He's getting paid. He's getting his. And mm-hmm. so he has sufficient justification. And so I'm thinking to myself, when does the dissonance creep in? Is it when BR steals his idea, tells the captain, you know, like, hey, maybe if we make it sexy in the movies and he's stealing that idea. So now maybe he feels less loyal to the organization. Maybe and yeah. it's not the moral thing, but he feels betrayed. Or maybe he was unimpressed with like the Hollywood agent types. Like they were saying these crass jokes around his son and he's wondering, is it really a good idea for me to bring my son on this trip? Or even more so when the Marlboro man points a gun at him and his son comes out of the car, you know, when is he starting to think like, am I doing good things here as a father? I don't honestly think he feels a ton of dissonance though until the end of the film Right after he says in front of Congress, in front of the senators, that if his son wants a cigarette when he turns 18, he'll buy him his first pack. Mm. And he walks out of that room. And for the first time in public, you know, he had that low point, but he looks like a wreck. He looks like, what have I done? And I think in that moment, it's maybe the most human moment Nick Naylor has in the film. It's mm-hmm. subtle, but I do think it's there. Yeah, I would also add to that. I think that's a great point. I would also add to that. Um, maybe he has a tinge of it when his uh, mortgage line is thrown back at his face by Katie Holmes's character. Uh, he goes, a lot of the things I told you were off the record. They were having uh, a little uh, uh, fling and she was just basically mining him for information the entire time. And so he ended up spilling his guts, but he thought everything was off the record, but he didn't say this is off the record. You of course, you have to you have to say this is off That's the record. That's the rule, Alex. The rule. It has to Hey, my story from college, I thought that was off the record. <laughs> you didn't say it. It's in the podcast now. Exactly. Um so you know, she throws that back in his face, and and I think for a moment, before he figures out how he can spin that, because he's really good at it, of course, um, he he does look really devastated, because um, you're right, he wants to be a good dad. He wants to yeah. be a good role model for his son. And I think that when he sees it on the other foot, it's a little bit of self-serving bias too. I didn't really think of it in the moment watching this film, but he is unable to see that when he's doing it, it's morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. He calls it flexible. But when she does it, he sees it so clearly wrong. Right. And so he's like, well, for me doing it for the mortgage, you know, that that's environmental factors. I'm a good guy. I'm just doing what I got to do. Yeah. But when she does it, he said, you you had a choice. You did not have to do this. And right. he's judging her uh, character 
when he fails to uh, put that lens to himself. So I, I think that's a great example of self-serving bias, actor, yeah. observer effect, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But um, yeah, he he definitely, I think you're right. He feels guilty in that moment. I, th- I think only momentarily and then sort of moves into, as you say, self-serving bias, because then he has to do the quick calculations on how I make this better for me, how I make this quote unquote right. I, I use the word right there very loosely. <laughs> right for me, really, as the uh, white man in the, uh, in the movie. <laughs> how do I make this right for me? Who's paying for it? He says the tobacco company's paying for it. I said, I don't need a bodyguard. I'm a man of the people. Rock on, Kennedy. Listen, we're all going to need bodyguards soon enough. Did you see the coverage the fetal alcohol people got themselves over this weekend? <laughs> they made it seem like we were encouraging pregnant women to drink. I'm surprised I didn't get kidnapped on my way to work this morning. I don't think people from the alcoholic beverage industry need to worry about being kidnapped just yet. Pardon me? Uh, look, I mean, nothing personal, but tobacco generates a little more heat than, than alcohol. Oh, this is news. My product puts away 475000 a year. Oh, okay, now 475 is a legit number. Okay, 435000 that's 1200 a day. How many alcohol-related deaths a year? Well, 100000 include- tops? That's what, 270 uh, a day? Wowie. Hey. 270 people, the tragedy. Excuse me if I don't exactly see terrorists getting excited about kidnapping anyone from the alcohol industry. Well, you haven't even okay, taken into account the number of deaths a year. Bobby, how many gun deaths a year in the U.S.? 11,000. 11,000. Are you kidding me? 30 a day? It's less than passenger car mortalities. No terrorist would bother with either of you. (sighs) Stupid argument. I'll say. I'm sure both of you warrant vigilante justice. Thank you. So the second part, uh, the second segment that I want to chat is um, as a social psychologist, Ed, um, you you probably spend a lot more time than I do uh, thinking and talking about social influence and persuasion. I wanted to get your uh, opinion on the concepts regarding influence and persuasion in this movie, because, of course, being a lobbyist is all about making the right persuasive arguments to get people to do what you want them to do, right? So what did you find in this movie? Well, first of all, <clears throat> it was it was one of the things I was most excited to talk about in the film because when I was in grad school, uh, long story short, I'm in the academic family tree, you know, advisors being advised by advisors yeah. of Dr. Robert Cialdini at Arizona State. Nice. And if you aren't familiar with his work, Um, He's best known for this incredibly influential book that is, of course, called Influence. And it's about his six principles of influence and persuasion. Recently, in his most recent edition, he added one. But uh, this movie is so full of them. And I remember it was this big perspective changer for me reading this book. And, of course, seeing all the field research that he had to back up these principles. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that you never look at a commercial quite the same way again, mm-hmm. right? You're like, which principles of influence are being used? Yeah. And it's one of my favorite assignments is to have my social psychology students find advertisements mm-hmm. that are using one or two of these principles, get into little groups, talk about it, share about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done it in election years when they're political ads. Mm-hmm. We've done it in non-election years where it's just regular ads. 
And it always leads to a lot of light bulb moments, okay. a lot of deeper understanding of marketing and uh, manipulation. And so I, I loved looking for all the ways he was masterfully weaving through these in the film. But um, I don't think catchphrases are, are quite on the nose for these principles of influence. So real quickly, I'm going to just outline what they were. Some of these are more relevant in the film. Some mm -hmm. of them are less relevant in the film. Uh, so authority, that's the one that I said, maybe Arby's is an authority on the meats. And so if someone's a doctor, if someone's a professor, if someone's an officer, they're the authority, you turn to them. And if this is what they think, well, I guess maybe I should think it too. Um, then you're going to look at the principle of liking, right? And so we like to be around people that we like and we like when they like us, if they're good looking, if they're fun, if they're cool, kind of like we were talking about the imagery and smoking. We're going to be more persuaded by people that we like than people that we don't. Mm -hmm. That's pretty straightforward. Reciprocity. It's a little bit of the golden rule, like treat others like you want them to treat you. Yeah. But the tricky thing about this is it's not, um, I can do something for you if you've done something for me. This, yeah. when applied the best, is, hey, I've already done something for you. Now it's your turn. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so that's that's where reciprocity works pretty strongly. Commitment and consistency. People don't like to acknowledge when they're being inconsistent. This is what feeds into cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Like, ooh, I used to always say cigarettes were so bad, but then I smoked that. How do I resolve this? Do I have sufficient justification or am I just being really inconsistent here? And so number five, social proof. If everybody in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s is doing this, uh, well, what, how can it be so bad? Everybody's doing this. This is like the classic social proof example is the number one cell phone company, the number one insurance mm -hmm. company. It must be pretty good if it's the most right, popular right. one. Mm -hmm. uh, number seven is about scarcity. You want it if you only know it's available for a limited time. And then number seven, the new one is unity. And it's a little nuanced, but it's more than social proof. It's not just a lot of people are doing this. It's a lot of people like us. A lot of people like you hmm. are doing this. So ah, it sort of combines okay. social identity, yeah. which he also has some work on social identity and sports fandom, which I've always been drawn to that work too. Not for this movie, but those are the seven principles of influence. And some of them, you know, aren't even really touched on. Scarcity, they talk about how cigarettes are widely available. So it's clearly not an availability issue yeah. that drives people to want cigarettes. Um, social proof, I actually think in the grand scheme of things, this persuaded people not to smoke as it was becoming more and more uncool, as more and more laws were being passed. Like, well, people are quitting every day. Maybe I should quit too. And so you see these stats, like 1,200 people die a day. That's a lot of people dying every day. Yeah. And so the social proof there works against him. So I don't think Nick Naylor uses social proof very much, and I don't think that he uses consistency. He actually, I, I, I he, right, excuse me, uh, scarcity. Gotcha. Social proof um, is very has a very interesting uh, context and a moment in the movie where the mod squad is chatting about how many people die a day of theirs. And this is where the 1200 uh, stat comes from that that Ed just mentioned 1200 die a day. I'm sure uh, it's far less than that now, but um, 1200 die a day at some 
val some number in the 90s and they're all comparing death numbers and Maria Bello as the as the alcohol lobbyist is just like how dare you say alcohol isn't a, isn't a killer and it's just like it's this really dark part of the movie where they're talking about this reverse social proof as as you mentioned <laughs> because yeah that is a stark number and i think they mentioned that like 700 people die a day from alcohol in as a retort or whatever and it's just like that's a 500 person difference a day yeah and of course you know the mod squad they're they're a morbid little group Mm -hmm. but then they almost like uh the gun lobbyist you know, it's a little bit of a reactance. He's like, actually, I'm not in trouble at all. They kind of like the moniker of the Mod Squad. We're going to put it on some bumper stickers. And so, again, it's that counterculture pushback yeah. that, that he was excited about. But, yeah, that's maybe the darkest scene in the whole film. I would say, yeah. So now we get into what makes Nick Naylor such a spin artist, mm-hmm. right? Because um, the academy that he works for, you know, they have this... Of course, stereotypical German doctor, <laughs> who I absolutely love their name, Dr. Erhard van Gruptenmund. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And it just makes you giggle. But also, you know, he, he challenges people to challenge authority, but for dubious reasons. So like on career day in his son's school, a girl raises her hand. She says, my mommy says that cigarettes kill people. And he says, oh, is your mommy a doctor? Is your mommy a researcher? She doesn't sound like much of a credible expert. <laughs> it's so good. But also that has, oh my God, that has exploded. When I saw, when I heard that and I saw you write it down in our, in our notes, I was just like, this is our life right now. There is so much of that. So, I mean, like, you know, the, the hate for, like, the Dr. Fauci's of the world mm-hmm. and all these things. And so, you know, it's dark, but this movie goes dark places. I remember some of my favorite Halloween decorations in 2020 were when people put out in their yard little tombstones that said he did his own research, yeah, right? So, exactly. like, in research methods classes, we have to talk about being good consumers of research, mm-hmm. even if you're not a researcher yourself. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to look out for the people that are trying to use misdirection and spin and all of these different kinds of things. But, you know, the point you have to challenge authority or you have to be skeptical, you know, there's skepticism and cynicism. And it's this delicate balance Mm -hmm. that if you're not careful as an instructor, it can get away from you a little bit. Right. That's true. And he leans into people's distrust of experts telling them things they don't want to hear. Yeah, and I suppose we have always maybe been distrustful as a species, uh, just broadly speaking, broadly defined. I mean, you go take any random example of a scientist in the past, uh, Galileo, probably the biggest one, labeled a heretic, and it's just like he's on the fringe uh, because this the information that he was proffering was was distrustful inherently and i think that that is part of our nature maybe i i'm just going to throw that out there somebody can challenge me on that one i feel like it just 
thinking about it now, it feels like it's part of our nature to be this way. And the only reason why we're seeing it so clearly is because social media and just the constant stream of information that we have now on the internet is just just highlights our inherent distrust of things we're not familiar with, things that we don't like, as you said. Uh, Yeah, nobody wants, I also think it's nobody wants to feel less than, nobody wants to feel stupid, nobody wants to be told that they like don't understand something. Right. And so I think that when, you know, you've, you've got these people who have taken a very different path, studied all these things, it's a lot harder to relate to these people. So this is where then if you're an authority who is also a a likable person, Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're going to be so much more influential than if you are an authority who's like distant and aloof and difficult to talk to. And so he is not the authority, but he comes off as that because it's like people want to hate him. And so quickly, they, they're, he's, they're eating out of his hand. He's, of course, you know, his, he's got a jawline like very few people on earth. Exactly. And, and so he is as smooth as they come, so handsome, but so loathsome. And you forget how he is on the side of big tobacco because he's just so smooth. And the handsomeness goes into that. The glamorization in the movies goes into that. You, you know, it's like classical conditioning. You like attractive people. You like sex. You like space. You combine all these things together and they're smoking. Do you like smoking now? And so you've got things that are being paired. It's so basic, but you know, you pair things that people already like people you already like. This is kind of like a Tupperware party back in the eighties. Like you like your friend. And so you're more likely to buy from your friend than just some rando. And so I think that the liking principle, he, uh, he sort of fades in and out of that one line that BR has after the article, uh, that the Katie Holmes character writes comes out, you know, it's this, expose and he told everything and br just this is back when uh what's the name of the actor again jk simmons jk simmons back when he was like you know spider-man's boss and he always kind of played these yelling gruff characters he hadn't hit whiplash yet he hadn't started to like hit his stride in some of these more dramatic roles yeah and so he's always like saying Oh, you destroyed all your goodwill creating that you created with your kidnapping with this story. It's gone. They don't like you anymore. We had them. You, they liked you, and it was a good spot, but that's gone now. And so they they know the power of being liked, and it's a very delicate balance that he has to do. He's not a liked person, but he has some things going for him that it makes him hard to like. I've always been fascinated by antiheroes, mm-hmm. and I think that he is an antihero yeah. that like. You find yourself, why am I rooting for this individual? Right, and that's the that's the mark of a good storyteller too, right? So kudos to Jason Reitman for finding the right person to do this. Like, I don't know if I could see another person do this role. And there's a bias there because Aaron Heckhart is Nick Naylor, but it's hard to see, right? I don't know. I, I, I'm picturing like a very shruggy Paul Rudd. There are people I can imagine getting away with some of these things, but Nick, mm, you I know, think Paul Rudd would be perfect. too goofy for me. I don't think Maybe. he would be suave enough. I think there's a, a level of suaveness to Aaron Eckhart. Also, Aaron Eckhart is taller than Paul Rudd. Height has mm. a lot to do with this, right? Height has a lot to do with how we perceive. Like it's it's part of 
uh, a, a an implicit level of attraction that many people have, right? We it's, it's the it. kind of thing where if this movie came out in the late '80s and they had cast Tom Cruise, they would have used some movie magic so he would have been a little taller than he actually is. It, exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like I think Aaron Eckhart here um, sells this not only in excellent acting. I don't know where where has he been. He hasn't been around for a while. Um, but also just like, yeah, he's very classically handsome. Yeah, he, he is, uh, he's got it all really. And so, you know, when you've got that going for you, everything is a little bit easier. It's like Mike Schur, the creator of the office parks and rec, the good place. He had a book recently when he's talking about moral philosophy, I'm not going to get into it, but he says, when you're a good looking white guy, you're playing the world on easy mode. Yeah. It's just everything. Every door is a little bit more open and Aaron Eckert takes advantage of that. Exactly. So, you're here to talk me into shutting up? That what's in that case of yours? Yeah, basically. No, not basically. That's, that's exactly it. My dignity ain't for sale. It's not an offer. It's a gift. Taxes have all been paid. You get to keep it no matter what you do. The idea is that somehow you're... Guilt will prevent you from badmouthing us. Are you supposed to be telling me all that? No, sir. Just apologize, give you the money, and leave. Why are you telling me this? Because this way you'll take the money. Why would I do that? Because you're mad. Damn straight I am. The first thing you'll do is you call the LA Times and CNN huh? and insist on Bonnie Carlton. She does really good controlled outrage. Tell them no Bonnie, no story. Watch it on MSNBC. Okay. And when they get here, you open up the case and you pour all the cash out onto the floor. Why? Trust me, it'll look more effective that way. Don't forget to shake every last bundle out. And if you can, you know, give a cough or two. Once it's all out on the floor, tell them what you're going to do with it. What am I going to do with it? You're going to donate it. Yeah, start the Lauren Lutz Cancer Foundation. You're going to have a ranch and a fair and a 5K. 5K is a must. It's television. Wait a minute. What about my family? Lauren, you can't keep the money. Why the hell not? Well, I mean, denounce us and then keep the blood money? I mean, look at it. All right, I gotta think this over. Lauren, oh, news doesn't work that way. You can't denounce us next week. I don't suppose I can denounce you for half of it. No, Lauren. You know, you keep all the money or you, you give it all away. And so um, the next principle that comes to mind is the principle of reciprocity. And remember, this works best if someone has already done something for you, you feel indebted to them. And I think that the biggest demonstration of this in a surprising, perhaps, way is when you have Cowboy Sam the Marble Man, who literally starts off pointing a gun at Nick Naylor. He is the last person on earth that the Marlboro man wants to see. Mm -hmm. And then he takes the money. He takes the money. And, and so he goes in and Nick Naylor's telling his boss, he says, Cowboys don't like bribes. I don't, I don't think this is going to work. 
And the reason that it worked is not that he gave him the money. Sometimes you have to combine these principles of influence. And he masterfully combines reciprocity. You know, I've already given you the money. What are you going to do for us in return? Mm -hmm. With commitment and consistency. And people don't like to realize that they're hypocrites. People don't like to realize they're doing things that, you know, this is important to them, but it's not being reflected in their actions. And so Nick Naylor says, well, you can't keep the money. You're going to donate this money. Yeah. We're giving you this so that you can make a grand gesture mm -hmm. because it's so important to you that you are going to take us down, that you're willing to give away all this money. Yeah. And you see the wheels turning in Cowboy Sam, the Marlboro Man's head, and he just said, you don't think I could denounce you for half the money? And he said, no, you have to, you have to give it all away, Sam. Yeah. Or you and keep it all. Or you, yeah, you keep it all and you say nothing. Mm -hmm. because that's, that's the implication. Yeah. Yep. And, or, or you give it away and you take us down as was your intention and you're no worse off than you were yesterday. Exactly. Right. And so he keeps the money and it's, it's, I can't even imagine the discussion he had with his wife after that scene. <laughs> But she, you know, the money probably helped. But <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, there, there are other wonderful moments uh, where you know Nick Naylor identifies the hypocrisy. We haven't talked very much about Senator Finister, played by William H Macy, mm -hmm. but um, you know he says you claim to care about the American farmer. You're, far, you're going to Farm Aid, talking about how you care about the American farmer, but is do you care about the American farmer if you're going to burn their tobacco fields in North Carolina and all these places? And is, is that caring? Is that how you care about the American farmer? And of course, he's, he's, he's trapped. Yeah. He's caught because they're farmers. And he was just talking about how he loved farmers. And then at the end, when he really throws the gauntlet down against the senator. Well, great, saying, great line. Oh, you think that we should have warning labels on things that are, are dangerous? Yeah. We need these reminders. Did you know cholesterol and heart disease kill way more people than cigarettes? Do we put the poison label on your Vermont cheddar? And indignantly, he says, the good people of Vermont will not apologize for its cheese. <laughs> so good. And just delivered <laughs> so earnestly and sincerely by William H. M William, William H. Macy. Oh man. oh, man. And I tell you what, as, as a Wisconsinite by birth and by a social identity <laughs> who lives in Florida, I identify with that. I was like, I'm so glad they didn't pick Wisconsin for this character, <laughs> but it's the same cheese. <laughs> I think they and were going for a Bernie the, Sanders uh, parody, to be honest with you. Perhaps. I mean, Bernie Sanders was certainly senator then. He wasn't on my radar in 2005 as much as he might have been on some other people's. Yeah. But I also think that the aesthetic of a desk with all of those leaf shaped bottles of maple syrup the the vermont logo in the back with the cheese i think the syrup and cheese combination is what made it vermont that's what i'm telling myself <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to wisconsin oh yeah. my gosh that's yeah, yeah. so funny right and it's weird too uh but you know vermont does make cheddar well, of course w wisconsin no, cabbage cheddar very good yeah exactly 
Uh, but I remember like you as a Californian, do you remember the happy cows come from California mm-hmm. ads? Yeah, I do. Those and they're those ads made me so fing mad. <laughs> <laughs> those ads They were they are one hundred percent right. How dare you besmirch our happy Wisconsin cows? The and sunshine so- sunshine is plentiful in the land of uh Fornia. Um and I, I'm sorry that Wisconsin doesn't breed happy cows. I know. I remember challenging my Californian college classmates. I was like, "Have you ever even had a cheese curd? Get out of here!" And so, you know, I, I you're talking to a man who grew up three miles from a cheese factory. <laughs> that is true. I could have biked there if I wanted to, but I usually didn't want to. And so, it's. It, it gives me dissonance. It does. But um, no, it, it, it does come back to bite Nick Naylor a little bit, the commitment and consistency, though. And again, we talked about it beho- before, about when he says he believes in the freedom to choose so greatly that if his son, when he's 18, wanted to smoke cigarettes, that he would buy him that pack. And there's probably a lot of reasons why he walked away from Big Tobacco at the end of the movie. But I almost wonder if that was part of it. He was like, I've crossed a line that's never going to get uncrossed. I said I would buy him this cigarette. Maybe I need to step away from cigarettes. And maybe the commitment and consistency got him a little bit there uh, when he decides to, you know, look for other ways he can be morally flexible. Yeah, I agree with that. And maybe I like in my head canon, implicitly, he knew that time would come eventually. Yeah, he was going to have to reckon with this forever. He he said, I can't keep this up forever, but I'm damn good at it. Yeah. Right. What's that quote at the end of the movie? Gentlemen, practice these words in front of the mirror. Although we are constantly exploring the subject, currently there is no direct evidence that links cell phone usage to brain cancer. Michael Jordan plays ball. Charles Manson kills people. I talk. Everyone has a talent. And, you know, it's just... he, he Weird knows. comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got a talent, you know. And so he's, he's so damn good at it because he will get you in ways that you're not expecting. I think that, like, when he's debating... He is so good at finding common ground with an audience that thinks they have no common ground with him. Mm-hmm. So when he's on the Joan London show. Joan London. And he, he says, we're going to launch a $50 million campaign aimed at persuading our kids not to smoke. Because I think that we can all agree that there is nothing more important than America's children. Nodding intensifies. with that? Yes, absolutely. Right. And so it's like the people they cut to the people in the audience and they're like, well, that's true. Yeah, I agree. How can you how can you disagree? (laughs) And it reminds me, it reminds me. So there's this Adam Grant is an IO psychologist who is kind of like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of IO psychology. Right. Yeah. He is like the the public face. He talks with Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast. He's got these books. So in his book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. They talk about like, well, what are you actually trying to do when you're debating someone, right? You're not trying to like make them mad. You're not trying to tear them down. You're trying to get them to come to your side. Yeah. And 
what they he cites a study um, by Neil Rackham that says, you know, you look at skilled debaters or versus just average debaters. And the main difference that skilled debaters, what they do significantly more often, like three times more often than these average debaters, is that they find common ground. They pull a person closer to their side or they say, I think we can agree on this. I think we can agree that America's children are our most important resource, or I think that we can agree that we all believe choice is important. And so you find this common ground. And so it's like, okay, this is sort of activating the unity principle in the roundabout way, saying like, it's not us versus you. We're all on the same page. And then he villainizes, you know, Robin Goody and says, the Robin Goodies of the world, they want this boy to die. Mm -hmm. We want Robin to live and smoke a long, healthy life. And it seems so extreme, but living in Florida during hurricanes, like I remember this was being thrown around that Florida politicians were saying, like, there are people here who want Tampa to be destroyed because it's going to be good for their political agenda. It's going to be good for their stance on climate change. They want me to fail. They want more people to die so it reflects badly on me. Right. Yeah. Head of Florida politics, right? We don't have to say. But it's, you know, it's definitely fascinating that then they go out of their way to make sure that Senator Finister personifies that evil later in the movie when Nick Naylor almost dies with the abduction. Yeah. And he's visibly upset <laughs> that Nick Naylor is still alive. Yeah, right. And and so it's definitely this scene where it's like, there are no good guys in this fight. No, there aren't. There are no good guys. I mean, it's entirely possible that there are no good guys in real life. Right. Oh, What's the saying? Man. What's the saying? <laughs> Don't meet your heroes. So, you know, yeah, I, I hope we've got some lighter notes to end on than this, Alex, because, you know, this was I, a very fun. You know movie. what? You know what? I think that's a great note to end on for a dark comedy such <laughs> as this. So there you go. I want to thank Ed Hansen for joining me to discuss. Thank you for smoking, but please don't. Uh, before we say goodbye, Ed, is there anything that you'd like to plug since the last time you've been on? Where can folks find out more about you and your work? I mean, they can find out about me in the normal places. I don't have anything new in the pipeline except that my kids are turning two and four very soon. Nice, But uh, no, you know, thanks. Thanks so much for having me again. When I was here the first time I had fun and I hoped you had too. And then when you invited me back, I felt a little bit like Sally field, like, Oh, they, he likes me. He really likes me. <laughs> and, uh, no, you can still find me in the Facebook SDP group. You can still find me on Twitter, at least for now I'm still on Twitter, but, uh, yeah, I'm Same. Ed Hansen underscore PH dad on Twitter. Nice. And I love, you know, that's how basically how Alex and I met and I love meeting people that way and, and having conversations like this. Perfect. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks again for joining me, Ed. Oh, thank you, Alex. And, uh, you know, even though I don't smoke, I'm still walking away from this conversation with a healthy amount of cognitive dissonance based on my love of cheddar cheese. So you take care. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one. Thanks for listening.